All right. We are live. Uh, hopefully everyone can hear me. Hello, Mark. Thank you for joining. Hey, good evening, everybody. Thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for joining. Good evening, everyone. We are live from the center of the universe. Um, glorious, lawless hellscape of San Francisco, uh, where the future is being made in real time. Um, so, you know, uh, Mr. Mark Andreessen obviously needs no introduction, uh, essentially invented the web, has dropped banger after banger of an essay. Um, and the latest why AI will save the world is pro probably his most provocative uh, since it's time to build, at least in my estimation. I guess the first question is a softball here. What prompted you to write this now? Yeah, so really, two two things. Um, uh, so one is just you know, like everybody else, you know, like I've I've you know I've been involved in AI for a long time. I you know work you know I've studied AI in, in school, and then um, you know we've we've my firm has invested in a lot of AI and AI, AI related companies and so forth. But like like you know like everybody else, like I have just been tremendously positively shocked and and impressed by the breakthroughs you know, that have been happening. And, you know, it started with like 2012 with the, you know, the, the sort of the image net breakthroughs and then, you know, cascading into 2017 with transformers and then all the incredible work happening with like autonomous, you know, vehicles. And then, um, you know, the, the GPTs that have been, you know, developing and then the image generators. And, to, and then in particular, it's just like over the Christmas break, you know, last year, like a lot of people, like I sat down and like spent a lot of time with at the time GPT three and with, with mid journey. And I was just like, okay, like this is happening, right? Like, and it's pretty amazing, right, that this is happening because the, the, the original neural network paper was written literally 80 years ago, right, in 1943. Um, and, uh, you know, 80 years That's later. It's amazing. Like, yep. Cybernetics took us this far. Yeah, I actually just read, I just read this great book I really highly recommend called Rise of the Machines by Thomas Ridd. And it's, it's a history of uh, the field of cybernetics. And uh, it starts in like 19, I don't even know, maybe even before 1940, maybe in the late 30s. Um, and it basically ends in the early 60s. And it turns out there was this entire field of cybernetics, which was like a big deal at the time. Um, and it just kind of it came and went and like it basically died uh, by the mid 60s. And it was really because essentially it was because AI didn't work yet. Um, and there had been, you know, waves of AI researchers in the 40s and 50s and 60s that thought they were on the cusp of breakthroughs that just never happened. Um, and so that, you know, the field got discredited over and over again. Um, a lot of the original cybernetic stuff, by the way, is like actually quite relevant um, to a lot of the debates. I mean, they, they had many of the same debates were happening today back then. Like they had, you know, there was like there was there were like panics in the press about like, you know, rogue AIs. Like there were you know, Norbert Wiener, you know, sounded a lot like a modern modern AI doomer. Um, and, and so anyway, like there, there's this rich and storied history here. But like, the, you know, basically the moment has arrived. Right. Like the, the breakthroughs are happening. Like, the, the you know, it really feels that way. Yeah, things work now. And I mean, it's just like, I don't even know, like, it's just like, it's so shocking. I have this, it's, it's like nearly, it's quite nearly a religious experience to like use one of these modern systems now and get back the answers. And you're just like, oh my God, like I, you know, I can't even believe I get to experience this. So that's on the plus side. And then on the, on the, on the minus side is just this like level of hysteria uh, and fear um, and, you know, panic. Um, and, you know, I, you know, my, my diagnosis is there's something that's happened in the national mood um you know that's made us as a population like you know uh we like we've probably always been prone to fear and panic historically and there's certainly lots of you know lots of examples of that through history but there's something in the national mood in the last five years ten years that has really i don't know you know put people on edge and so you know concerns get blown out to levels of just like hysteria and paranoia that i just kind of find staggering um and you know there's you know there's we could probably spend all night talking about lots of examples of that but um 
you know, I, I'm just like I am negatively shocked by the level of, of panic and hysteria that is that is surrounding AI, and I think it's 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 extremely dangerous uh, on a number of fronts. And so, um, so the, the doomers the doomers had a run for a while, um, uh, and uh, I decided finally I had to I had to put my two cents forward. Like there's a lot more content for the doomers than there is on the optimistic side. And I yeah. think being able to concretely articulate what we're going to get out of these technologies is vitally important. Um, and certainly the way that you went point by point here, I mean, it was, it's, it's fairly compelling. Obviously, one of the hard things to articulate about how AI will have a positive impact is because it's such a general technology. I and mean, at, at the dawn of the web, and the analogy that I always give people is like, this is 1994 and you're asking me for what the profit and loss of Snapchat is going to be. We just, right. we just don't know, but it's clearly powerful, right? Um, do you think that that's like, is it analogously powerful? Is this like at least as important as the web? You were there. Tell us. Yeah, you know, we'll see because, we, you know, we, I'll start by saying this. Like, I'm a real optimist that there's going to be a lot of innovation now. Like, there, there's, there's going to be a flood of really smart people joining the field and doing, I think, breakthrough work in the next 10, 20 years. And so, like, I, I'm a, I am an optimist on the speed of improvement from here, right? And, and, and by the way, that includes me. I'm an optimist on, like, solving all the problems, you know, that could potentially hold, hold you know, hold this technology back from, from broad adoption. And then, you know, we could, we could talk about those, but I, I think there's going to be a lot. Already, there's a lot of very smart scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs who are kind of flooding the zone to kind of fix all the identified problems. So I'm, I'm, so I'm an optimist on, like, what, what's going to happen here, how fast things are going to move, how good this stuff is going to get. Um, if, if the potential pans out the way I think it will, um, you know, then we're talking about, yeah, Internet scale. And, and, you know, I don't say that lightly. Like, I don't, I don't compare many things to the Internet. I never have. Um, you know, and then I think also you got to think, like, for this one, you got to think in terms potentially of things like electricity and, and the microchip um, and, you know, steam power, like, a, you know, the printing press, like, a, you know, wow. right, a very small number of things where, you know, they define, you know, you could say they define, like, entire new eras. You know, they, 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 they just, they, you know, they're just like a permanent change in how, you know, in how everything works. Um, and uh, so this, this certainly feels like one, it's like, assuming that this works, it's hard to imagine that, that this isn't of that level of impact. And it's, it's because of how I, it's because of the, the reason that I said when I started the essay, which is like, this is intelligence, right? And, and, you know, intelligence is like the fundamental building block for improving things. Um, and up until now, the application of human intelligence has been the building block of improving things in the world. And now if we're going to also have machine intelligence working with us on that, you know, it, it's hard to overstate the importance of the potential here, I think. Yeah, as you know, I'm, you know, a big optimist on technologies in general. And I think um, the idea that we ought to slow down and control these things early is a little, you know, it's, it's, it's a little worrying that we always rush to that as a civilization and as a society. I think it creates far more problems than it solves for us. But Maybe a harder question. If you were to steel man your opponent's arguments, give them give them the best case you could possibly give. What do you think that case is? Yeah. So the the, the steel man of the other side is is basically I think it's 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 the it's the so called precautionary principle, right? Um, and the the precautionary principle is an actual like thing documented, studied, you know, analyzed books on it, you know, lots of papers, great Wikipedia entry. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't. I had a section I was going to do in the essay that I didn't because it, it got too long. But um, uh, a, a section of the precautionary principle because that, that's the core 
um, of basically the argument. And, and the, the precautionary principle basically uh, says it's sort of an ethical ethical you know principle uh, that people propose. And it basically says if you're inventing a new technology, um, the inventors of the technology have a moral ethical responsibility to identify and prevent all possible negative use cases uh, of the technology before they roll it out. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the, the usual response to that is very straightforward, which is like, had we applied the precautionary principle through history, right, we would not have the internal combustion engine, the automobile, you know. We wouldn't have fire. We wouldn't have fire, right? And, and I, I mentioned in the essay, like, there's this, there's this central myth. Uh, there's this central myth the Greeks had, um, uh, the, the myth of Prometheus, which, which, which sort of encoded, the, the myth of Prometheus sort of encodes the precautionary principle in sort of a very kind of, uh, you know, sort of fundamental way, which, right, in the, the myth of Prometheus, this Prometheus is, uh, uh, brought fire to man. Um, and in response, the uh, Zeus uh, uh, sentenced him to be uh, chained to a rock and have his liver pecked out every, every single day for the rest of eternity. Right. So and, and you know, it, it's sort of like, you know, it's basically you, you have turned you, Prometheus, have turned over this power. Right. And actually, in the myth, it's actually interesting. The power is actually the literal power of fire, but also for the Greeks that that represented what they called techni. Um, uh, which basically was, uh, you know, sort of technology and knowledge, right? So, you know, sort of the ability to, you know, form new ideas and then be able to use those ideas on the world in, in the form of what we now call technology. Um, and so, like, right there in the very beginning, they were like, okay, like, you know, you know, because, of course, fire can be used for, like, horrible things. Like, fire has killed a lot of, you know, fire burns down entire cities. It's a weapon of war. Um, you know, people, you know, get, you know, got historically tortured with fire, you know, burned at the stake. Right. Like, fire, you know, fire gets used for a lot of bad things. But, you know, fire also, you know, like basically is responsible for the development of our entire civilization because it, it kept us warm, uh, you know, during very cold nights. And it, it let us cook food, uh, both of which were key to survival and, and then over time building larger tribes and communities. Um, and so, you know, it, it's sort of the, the entire precautionary principle is kind of right there in, in, in the Prometheus, Prometheus myth. Now, to steel man the response to that, it would be, yeah, okay, Mark, like fire or like gunpowder or, you know, um, you know, internal combustion engines. It's like, okay, maybe you shouldn't apply the precautionary principle to those because the, the, the specific dangers of those are localized, right? Like fire is a threat to you if you're like near the fire, but not, you know, if you're not, you know, whereas, you know, sort of the, the argument goes, the steel man argument goes, there are other technologies. And the usual one that people cite like is, is like nuclear weapons. Uh, as an example of this, that basically say, you know, now we have technologies that are, you know, potentially global, right, and their and their negative consequences, and so you have to, um, you know, you 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 have, you know, once there are global consequences, you have a moral obligation to apply the precautionary principle. That makes sense, and obviously, this is a technology that has global consequences. What do you say to the idea that because what we're building is essentially a a complementary good to human intelligence, more or less, right? What would you say to the idea that the main worry, is it basically phrasing this differently, is it a real worry that this is a technology that we could in principle lose control of in some, in some very bad sense? Yeah, so maybe let me back up just for a second because I left I left myself hanging on the on the steel man of the precautionary principle argument. Yeah. So but maybe I, I could argue, and then I'll, I'll pick it up kind of where you are, argue against the use of the precautionary principle for 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 a lot of these technologies. So, um, uh, the um, you know the the, the counter argument, and, and I like to use nuclear weapons for this. Uh, you know, nuclear nuclear technology because that was that was the heart of a lot of these ethical debates through the 20th century. 
Uh, and actually, the you know the Christopher Nolan has this Oppenheimer movie, Oppenheimer movie coming out this summer, which is going to you know be a really big deal for all these discussions because it's going to kind of resurface all of these debates that, that happened around nuclear weapons and nuclear technology in the sort of you know 30s, 40s, 50s because um, that's you know going to be central, I think, to the to, to the plot of this movie. And, and there's a whole saga there that's like incredibly interesting about you know the moral the morals and ethics of the development of, of nuclear nuclear technology. Um, but basically, like the precautionary principle, like, you know, one of its one of its use case, as it was sort of developed in the and it was really, by the way, developed in like the 70s and 80s with the, the rise of the modern environmental movement, you know, and especially the Greens in Germany, ironically, for <laughs> given what they're doing right now, shutting down other nuclear plants, but in the middle of an energy war. Um, but, um, you know, there was this debate around around and around nuclear energy and, and you had Oppenheimer and you had Albert Einstein and you had all of these like incredibly eminent, basically scientists at the time going around basically saying, you know, we have to, you know, we have to apply essentially the precautionary principle to nuclear technology. We have to put it back in the box. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't develop this. You know, we regret inventing it. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, you know, of course that was, that was centered in on nuclear weapons and there's a whole discussion we can have about nuclear weapons. There's, you know, there's obviously a big con case in nuclear weapons. There's also a big pro case in nuclear weapons, which is, you know, a lot of historians believe that the existence of nuclear weapons actually prevented world war three, right? In other words, they, they prevented a catastrophic land war in Europe, right? In the fifties and sixties with the Soviet union that would have probably killed a hundred million people that didn't happen because of the mutually assured destruction of nuclear weapons. And so even with nuclear weapons, you can argue, you know, boy, like, you know, it was actually good that they were invented, that they actually like prevented a lot of death. Um, but the precautionary principle like rebounded in a, in a spectacularly bad way around the specific topic of nuclear power. Um, and, and, and this is, this is very relevant uh, to the shape of the entire global energy industry. And it's incredibly relevant to all the issues around climate emissions and uh, climate uh, change and carbon emissions. Um, which basically is, um, you know, that we, that basically, as it turns out, like nuclear power is like by far the safest and cleanest form of scaled reliable energy, um, that has ever been invented. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing to this day that's anything like it. Um, you know, it, it is, you know, far superior in practice to wind and solar because nuclear plants run 24 seven. Um, and then it is, you know, it's, it's zero emission. And as long as you contain the relatively small amount of nuclear waste, like it has zero impact on the environment, you know, it's literally, it literally emits water. Right. Um, uh, it's, right. It's, it's totally clean. Right. Um, and in fact, yeah, we couldn't, just, we couldn't predict the, we couldn't predict the positive effects, right? If we had just applied the precautionary principle and saw nuclear power only in the form of weapons, uh, we would never have arrived at nuclear power. And, 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 and the backlash in the culture against nuclear power has kind of created these absurd situations, like you mentioned, in, in Germany. Yeah, so this is the craziness that's now that we're now in. And so the, it's actually funny, the Germans actually, the, the precautionary principle is actually originally created by Germans in the like 1970s. Um, the that's squares. There. And, and the that's squares. Right, and the Green Movement in Germany right now, right, just demanded and accomplished, a I think they shut down the last of their nuclear reactors, they're, they're in the process of doing it. And, and there are two catastrophic consequences to that. Number one, that means they have to continue to buy oil from Russia, right, which is they're funding the Russian war effort because they won't keep the nukes on. And then the other just incredible consequence of it is, of course, they want to cut over to other you know, so-called clean energies, um, particularly wind and solar. But wind and solar are not reliable. They don't run 24-7. Um, and so as a consequence, uh, what, of course, Germany is doing um, is they're wrapping up coal. Um, and of course, coal is like incredibly dirty. Right. Um, and so yeah. emissions in, in Germany are, yeah. are, 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 are spiking right now. And so this this sort of, quote unquote, ethical overlay of this thing where you think you've got this framework that basically says we can sort of sit on a sort of ethical Mount Olympus and we can make these judgments about these technologies and we can kind of play God and we can kind of decide this one should be allowed to develop and this one shouldn't. 
like it's just it's just such a the, the nuclear thing is just such a classic example of like you have failed in every possible way including according to your own criteria of success right. and you have failed so badly that you can't even bring yourself to acknowledge how badly you failed and you continue to make the same mistake and you're, it's literally been 50 years and you're still making the same mistake like in real right. time and so right. this is just this is my response to the, the steel man which is just like th this entire attitude that there are these like basically you know high-minded abstract you know ivory tower utilitarian ethics that could be administered from you know from some sort of intellectual mount olympus like it just it doesn't work um and and you need to take like you just need to have like a much more practical approach uh, on how to deal with yeah. this thing let me uh let me take maybe a hard right turn here um so we talked about nuclear and i think nuclear is an interesting place to start and your essay kind of alludes to this as well but besides besides the uh you know the oppenheimer union of concerned scientists people who after after the atomic bomb um really started this you know nuclear movement in the u.s there was johnny von neumann and johnny von neumann uh, once the United States had nuclear weapons, strongly advocated for their use against the Soviet Union as soon as possible. Uh, and there's that famous, um, not speech, but that, that famous line he gave, which is like, if, if, uh, if you say we should start bombing uh, next month, I say, why not next week? If next week, why not tomorrow? If, if tomorrow, why not now? Um, and, you know, you, you alluded to this idea of AI competition, and in some ways it resembles nuclear competition. So is, like, how do we... Is that what we should be doing? Should we be just getting so far out ahead? What, what, what's the impact here? Like, what's what's analogous to achieving AI supremacy? Yeah. So, so to start with, I think von Neumann got a little carried away. Um, I, I uh, think it's a good thing we didn't first strike Russia uh, when we had the bomb and they weren't you know, deployed yet. I think um, I would not advocate for doing, doing that. I would not advocate for a nuclear for an AI first strike against. All right, we've got we've got you on record not advocating for nuclear war. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, at least not preemptive nuclear war. Um, so, and so um, you know, he, he like he took it too far. Now. Having said that, and you alluded to this, there is context, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to forgive him for that or try to explain it, but I say there, there is context for what was happening then, and there is this very interesting historical comparison to what's happening now, um, and you alluded to it, but the context, and the, the context, and again, I, I think this is going to be in this movie, my hope anyway, um, which is, so, you know, the United States developed the bomb uh, at the Manhattan Project, and then the Russians got the bomb, and the way the Russians got the bomb was American and, you know, other scientists who were working for the Americans, uh, some European scientists working for the Americans, um, uh, gave the bomb to Russia. They, they gave Russia the designs. Um, and, you know, there was, you know, Soviet, you know, subversion at the Manhattan Project, there were spy rings. Um, you know, Whitaker Chambers wrote this whole book in uh, the 1930s, you know, 1930s, 1940s called Witness, where he describes running an NKVD, you know, spy ring in, in, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, you know, Alger Hiss, who was number three in the State Department and one of FDR's main advisors at Yalta, was a Soviet spy. We know that now for sure. Um, you know, there were um, uh, and then, you know, Oppenheimer himself, there's dispute. This will probably be in the movie. There's dispute about exactly what he did. Um, but, you know, he had multiple family members who were communists and, you know, there were a lot of people around him. Um, and, and, and some set of these people did give Russia the bomb. Um, like that, that is actually what happened. Right. And, 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 you know, and, and, and they had, if you read like their writings and the things they said at the time, like, you know, they again felt like there was an ethical or moral judgment to be had here, which is, you know, they basically were like, look, if the Americans, if the Amer if only America has it, and if the Soviet Union doesn't have it, then America is going to be tempted to do a first strike and it's going to be, you know, an imbalance of power. And so, we need to get Russia, the, you know, but but they took it on themselves to do that. Now, 
we don't have an analogous situation like that. Like AI is not nuclear weapons. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's not an, and there isn't like, you know, so, you know, we don't have the equivalent of like, you know, Soviet, the Soviet like penetration of like the U S government and, and the U S like scientific establishment there, there, you know, that's not the it, it directly analogous situation that we have today. Um, however, that, that said, we do have a geopolitical rival, um, by the way, which happens to be a communist, <laughs> a communist state, um, at, at, uh, at, at scale and, 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 it, and it is China. And so th- there are, um, you know, there are geopolitical, there, there is a geopolitical dynamic here. Um, and just, and I'm, and, and I'm not even saying I have, you know, an opinion on this, but I'm just, just observing like tensions are heating up. Right. Um, and so for a long time in American politics there, you know, geopolitics, there was a sense that we should, you know, basically collaborate with China. Um, and, you know, there was this, the, the, the former kind of policy under both Obama and, and, and Bush was basically don't rock the boat, be friendly. Um, you know, under both President Trump and President uh, Biden, you know, there's a big step up in, you know, tension, um, you know, and I think on, on both sides, um, uh, people can read about this in the newspaper. Um, and, and look, and, and look, China has identified AI as a national strategic priority. China has identified AI as something that is a you know, critically important to how their regime operates. They've identified AI as something that they plan to wire into their society. They've identified it as something that they tend to, they tend to spread their approach forward around the world. They're doing a lot of things in support of that. Um, and, uh, and they view it as core to everything. And they, and they viewed it as core to the, the way their military will operate. And Xi Jinping has given speeches and, and written papers about like how it's going to be the basis for the, the Chinese military. Um, and, you know, and look in the U S we have a, you know, we, we have a more of a decentralized messy situation. Um, uh, so it's not as, we're not as coherent, uh, because our system is, is different, but, um, you know, look, the, the U S military has identified that a, basically AI automation, um, uh, is, is, is what they call the third offset, which is basically the third major, you know, revolutionary technology that's going to be applied to the future for the American military, American warfare. Um, and so, you know, th- look, this this technology has, you know, repercussions for the future of geopolitics and the future of war. And there, there is an aspect to it that's incredibly important. Um, and, you know, there is a very, you know, there are very interesting questions for how information gets transferred between, you know, between between these countries and how, you know, China, in some cases, you know, ends up with, you know, designs for things invented in, in, in America. And so there <laughs> there's there's at least an echo uh, of that uh, of that Cold War dynamic developing. And I think it's, it's certainly right. worth paying attention to. Right. So t- taking this, taking this, you know, from the geopolitical dynamics back to the regulatory dynamics, I think like, could it, could you make the case or like, t- to what extent do you agree with the idea that given that this is a technology of geopolitical importance, it's actually fairly in the U.S. government's interest to control and, and, and sort of at least, well, pr- heavily promote its development or at least intervene, given how important it seems to be in the future for the country? Yeah, so there's this line I quote in the essay, which I've always liked, and it's not even a political, it's not a political observation, it's a, just a general strategic observation, which is, you know, again, if you kind of study the Cold War, there were all these debates, uh, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s about how to deal with the Soviet Union and how to have, you know, peace or war, or, you know, how to avoid nuclear war and all these things. And, and uh, you know, Ronald Reagan came into office in 1980, and, you know, whether you like Reagan or not, he, he, he took a different approach. Um, and he was asked what his strategy is vis-a-vis the, the Soviet Union. And his answer was, my strategy is we win, they lose. Um, <laughs> it was, and at the time, it was very clarifying because uh, that had not been the strategy up until that point. Um, and, then, and then directly relevant to this situation, the, the result of that was basically uh, a, a surge. Uh, he surged money um, into R&D. Uh, into American R&D. And in particular, in that era, um, you know, the concern was still at that point, primarily nuclear weapons, right? Uh, nuclear exchange was the big thing that everybody worried about. 
Um, and he surged money into a program known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, nicknamed SDI, which became colloquially known as, as Star Wars, uh, which was you know, a, a missile defense system. Um, and he surged money into that. And he basically, and, and by the way, there's dispute to this day of like, you know, could it have been made to work? Did it ever work? Will it ever work? You know, there's, there's still a lot of research, you know, kind of going on in this area. Um, you know, there's, there's smaller scale systems like uh, the, you know, Patriot missiles now that can, you know, shoot down, you know, incoming, um, you know, uh, you know, s s smaller scale rockets. Um, you know, the, the Israelis have their Iron Dome system. Yep. Um, right. Um, but so, so the idea of SGI was basically like the Iron Dome, but for, for ICBMs. And so anyway, like, there's a dispute as to whether Reagan, like, and, you know, because we, we never really got it to work, as far as I know, like during the 80s. And I think it still maybe doesn't quite work because um, like ICBMs fly like super fast and they're actually really hard to intercept. But he surged R&D into it. And then, you know, actually two possible outcomes from that surge of R&D. One was that they made it work. But the other was they just had to basically convince, as it turns out, the Soviet Union that, that, that there was a good shot that they were going to make it work. Um, and it basically demonstrated to um, the Soviet Union that basically they, they just simply had reached the point by the 80s where they were not going to be able to keep up with U.S. science and technology. Um, and, it, and they just basically could not continue trying to compete with the U.S. Like it, it just wasn't a feasible thing for the Soviet Union to compete with the U.S. anymore, basically, after, so uh, after concretely, the late 80s. Concretely. Right. And so, right, and by the way, and by the way, the, the, you know, when the Soviet Union fell, like it fell with no bloodshed, right? Um, like it was like a remarkable, you know, kind of thing. And, and, you know, and look, we have our issues with Russia today, but like, you know, a lot of empires fall, you know, it's a lot worse. Um, Again, this is not a directly comparable situation. Nobody's suggesting the Chinese you know, regime is, is going to fall. Nobody's suggesting that we should try to make that happen. That, that's not the comparison. But, but there is this question of there is going to be a country that is going to have technological superiority in this technology. Um, and, it is, and, and, and there are two choices. It is going to be us or it's going to be China. And, 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 and both of these countries have global ambition. And both of these country, countries have visions of, of, global, of, 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 of global standards and norms uh, and global technological infrastructure in the shape of, of, of global societies. Um, and, you know, both, both of these countries are acting on those, on those visions today. Um, and, and, you know, whoever wins the AI race is going to determine a lot of the future of how, of how the entire, entire world operates. Um, and so, it, yeah, I, I think it's, it's clearly in the interest of the United States economically, socially, um, and militarily, um, and, uh, and in terms of national security, um, you know, that we should, we should absolutely make sure that, that, that we win this one, uh, as a, in terms of the technology race. Right. So what, what concretely should the government be doing? Because in your essay, you concretely say they shouldn't be picking winners. What should they be doing? Yeah. So the, 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 the this goes to like the contrast with the Chinese communist, you know, kind of system. And this also goes to how we won the Cold War, which is like, you know, the big advantage that China has is that they can basically direct their private sector to do whatever they want, because all private companies in China are ultimately owned and controlled by the by the Communist Party. And so, you know, they, they can organize right in a, in a sort of central planned, coordinated way. Um, you know, we we notoriously are bad at that. Why are we bad at that? Well, because, you know, we're a more more of a, more of a free society and then we have you know more of a free market. Um, and in our system, you know, companies can kind of, you know, subject to regulation, but companies are you know, free to make their own uh, decisions in a lot of areas uh, in terms of what they do. Um, and so, you know, and there's this old debate about, you know, the 
<laughs> which system is superior. And I think we've, you know, long since proven capitalism works better than communism, but apparently, you know, some people think that's still an open question. Um, but, you know, we have our system and our system, you know, worked well to win the Cold War with Russia. Um, and, and, and basically, right, my proposition is we should use our system and its advantages, um, you know, to also to also, you know, win this Cold War. Again, with a very different a picture, a very different outcome here. But we, but we, you know, we, we should, we should, uh, you know, we, 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 we should have the level of superiority that we need to make sure that the, the sort of Western vision is the one that prevails. Um, and so, um, so we should, we should basically leverage the government should leverage the first, first and most important thing. The government should leverage the the, the private sector. Um, and for AI, of course, that means big companies. That also means startups, and then that also means open source. Um, and basically all three categories of those players should basically be free to operate and compete. We can, we can go into detail um, on what that means. Um, and then what should the government do? You know, a bunch of things. Uh, but one is, you know, look, a lot, a lot of, you know, everything in our world today is because the government funded a lot of historical basic research. Um, you know, certainly the government, should, you know, has put a lot of money in AI research over the decades and should, you know, for sure should continue to do so. Um, you know, second is the government should be a big leading edge uh, early adopter customer of all these new technologies. And actually, there's a fair amount of that happening. The, the, the government, especially the military and the intelligence agencies actually buy a lot of the you know, new, you know, new products from 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 the, you know, from from startup you know, companies, including the ones doing AI. Um, and then, um, you know, historically, open source has been, you know, a phenomenally, um, you know, beneficial technology. Um, you know, for, for our economy and for the technology that, that we all build um, and that we, you know, we should certainly, you know, in the form of everything from Linux to GNU to, you know, to everything else. And, and we should for sure continue to, to, to foster and enable that and not do anything to, to prevent it. Um, and, and so th those are the fairly basic building blocks. And I think if, if we do those things, then our system will kind of operate as designed. Um, and then from there, there's like a whole bunch of like a la carte things that, you know, can be done on top of that. Um, but that, but that will give you the foundation for kind of the the, the race to technological superiority that that, that I think we're, we would then be in a good position to win. Right. So it's not it's not a Manhattan project. It's it's much yeah. more. It's much. What what is it analogous to in in the history of American industry? Would you say? Yeah. Well, it's it's like it's like everything else other than, than the Manhattan project. Everything besides the Manhattan project <laughs> and, right. and the Apollo project, right? Like it, it, well, you know, the Apollo is Apollo is kind of maybe a different case because they had so many contractors and subcontractors and sub subcontractors a lot of a lot of fairly small private businesses contribute to that too um but i understand that i understand what you're getting at there yeah that's correct. totally that's correct like the man the, and this is important right the manhattan project was a military project um and so the, the head of the you know manhattan project had two heads uh oppenheimer was the scientific head but they had general groves who was the military head and he, he ran the project and it was run by by the u.s military right and so like and look, that made sense then. You know, I mean, look, in the, in the in the heat of World War II, and you know, you were dealing with like nuclear material, and everything was classified, and you put everybody in the desert, and like you, you know, you, you like, you know, that that you know, to develop a bomb, like that was a very specific thing at a very specific moment in time. You know, this is not that. You know, that look that if that look if the Manhattan Project ever happens again, it's not going to be in the world we live in today. It, things are going to have to go much worse than they're going now. Right. We have another one of those. And so let's, let's hope that never happens. Um, and then, yeah, look, Apollo project was like a 1960s thing. And it was to your point, it was, there was a lot of contractors, but it was a government, it was like a, you know, Kennedy Camelot era, you know, kind of the U S government is going to like lead the way and organize everything. Um, by the way, that I forget the exact number. Somebody did a study like the, the Apollo project at a certain point was some actually fairly meaningful percent of like the entire U.S. economy, right? Like the entire U.S. GDP was being directed towards that program. And again, like that's just not, 
I don't know. Like, it, it, I, I think the odds of us doing anything like that are not, are, are not high anymore. Um, and so I think the examples that we look at are not that. I think the examples we look at, I think it's more, um, probably the closest analogy period would be what's known as the second industrial revolution, um, which is call it roughly 1880 to about 1930. Um, and that was the period of basically, that was the period where a lot of the modern world got built. And so that was automobiles, it was electricity, it was radio, it was television. Um, it was, um, uh, you know, modern logistics. It was, you know, the, the beginning actually of computers. Um, it was, uh, you know, just a, a whole bunch of mechanization, it, like control systems, like basically, it, you know, it was basically the, the building of basically, basically what, we, what today we consider to be modern, modern industrial society, you know, sort of modern mechanical, electrical, uh, you know, kind of society. Um, it was literally electricity, right? Like that was a pretty big deal. Um, and, and you know, look, and that was a that was that was you know that was a that was you know there was a there was a that was a free market phenomenon. Um, you know, but but look, with government programs along the way that that you know that steered deployment and you know expanded or steered or expanded deployments a different way. There were you know the the U.S. military adopted all of those technologies. Aircraft, right, was in that same era. Um, and then, um, you know, the other thing that happened was you had the government pushes at the time, like, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority and so forth that would do like rural electrification. And so there, there was a, there was, there were private, you know, public private kind of partnerships kind of through that period. But fundamentally what was happening was free market entrepreneurship, um, you know, scientific and technical innovation, and then, you know, large scale, you know, general electric and general motors and IBM, right. And these kind of, you know, now, you know, kind of legendary American companies Ford motor company um you know built westinghouse right built at scale to deliver these technologies to the masses and i, I think that's that, that's a better comparison yeah i think i think that's pretty reasonable let's talk briefly i mean you know we touched on this idea of cybernetics nope, i lost uh, your, I wanna... uh, your yeah go ahead uh, Matt. sorry we, uh, we we touched briefly on cybernetics at the start of the space and i want to talk a little bit about AI and centralization right and and it's so first of all centralization first of all in its possibility to be regulated AI still requires a lot of compute. That compute lives in only a few data centers around the United States. To do anything useful with it today, you, you need significant compute power. So that seems like an easily regulatable bottleneck should the regulator choose to go after it. And secondly, uh, around another question around centralization is um, cybernetics developed in the Soviet Union eventually as a system of, basically they wanted to do central planning using yep. computers. Right. Yep. And so do you see a potential future in which AI, like, let's say, let's say there is some compounding effect of a company which manages to develop AI. And you can imagine, so Amazon is, is essentially an internally, uh, almost a cybernetic economy. And you can imagine on, with AI built on top of that, that centralization could compound. I was wondering if you could speak to both of those things, both the centralization of compute necessary to run AI, and then the possible centralizing powers of AI itself. Yeah. Yeah. So sitting here today, so sitting here today, there's a massive question in the technology itself that you alluded to. And then basically it, it goes as follows, which is basically, OK, why do these things work? Like, why does GPT-4 work as well as it does? Why does MidJourney work as well as it does and so forth? And, and you know, the, the answer, you know, basically that you get back is, you know, innovation is basically on three fronts. Um, you know, algorithmic improvements. Um, uh, but then, you know, basically the scale of available training data. Right. Um, which which now means like, you know, Internet scale training data, like the complete Internet corpus of text or images um, and then, uh, you know, large scale, highly efficient compute. Right. More, basically, you know, the, the long awaited kind of culmination of Moore's law 
you know, resulting in, you know, these, these giant, you know, basically grids of, of, of GPUs. Um, and basically, you know, if you talk to the practitioners, you know, the people who kind of build this stuff, you know, what they'll tell you is, yeah, the algorithmic improvements have been important, but a lot of this is just simply down the size of the data um, and then the size of the, of, of the compute grids. Um, and so, you know, so basically what that, and then what that basically says is, you know, look, there, there, is a, there is a big scale component here. And of course, you, you know, you, you see this in, in how much money these companies raise and, you know, kind of how, how, how they operate. Um, you know, this is not the first technology to kind of have that characteristic. In fact, arguably, this is kind of the normal way that, you know, you know, the, maybe computers generally have been an exception to this. This is maybe norm, the normal way industrial technology evolves. Um, you know, there's just to give you one precedent for this, um, you know, the, the phone system, um, you know, was it actually actually originally uh, telephone networks in the U.S. were actually patchwork level at the neighborhood level. And then this guy, Theodore Vail, basically organized this company, AT&T. Um, and he said, look, there's going to be network effects, mean, you know, economies of scale means there's going to be exactly one phone system for the U.S. There's going to be one. Right. And the reason there's going to be one is because, like, once you have one, it doesn't make sense to have others. And, and one is going to be the most efficient because then anybody can call anybody else. Right. And actually, what he did was he, he went to the federal government and basically said, I'm going to build a monopoly. And, and basically, I want you to just, like, regulate me up front. Because like I, I I I need to build this as a monopoly. I need to build this as like right. a social network effect. Right. I was looking for an example of this. I was looking for an example of an industry in United States history that asked to be regulated before it really even existed. And there you go. I was looking for this. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. And so that's a little bit different than in this case. Because in this case, I think what you have is the push for a cartel or an oligopoly. And that in that case, it was a flat out push for a monopoly. Um, and, and by the way, he got the monopoly, right? Um, he actually got the monopoly. Um, that happened. Um, he um, ran, they ran that monopoly. This is the old AT&T. They ran that monopoly for like 80, 70 years, uh, basically without competition. Um, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, like long distance calls cost on the order of, I think, a dollar a minute. And that was in 1970s dollars. <laughs> which were worth a lot more. Um, and so, you know, like it, it worked. And then there was this famous case in 1984. There was this famous antitrust case where AT&T was broken up. Uh, and there's actually a great book called The Deal of the Century where they, they talk about the breakup. And, and the, 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 the rage that came out around that breakup was so intense. There were these incredible fights that took place. And, uh, but AT&T was so entrenched in the government that they ultimately, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, ultimately testified before Congress and he testified that if uh, the U.S. Department of Justice moved ahead with breaking up AT&T um, and creating competitive telecommunications uh, um, you know, industry, um, that it would permanently impair uh, U.S. military command and control systems, including control of the nuclear weapon systems, and basically render there it the is. U.S. Everything is all connected. Everything ends up being connected. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, the U.S. government, as it turns out, they didn't, they didn't buy it. The, the Reagan Justice Department actually didn't buy it. And they, and they actually, and the judge in the case, didn't buy it. And so they, they actually broke up AT&T. And the, and the fact that they broke up AT&T is actually what led to the Internet. Um, it, led to the, it led to the possibility of the Internet because the AT&T executives and, in fact, research scientists in a lot of cases had no intention of letting like a packet switch network work. They didn't like believe in it. They, they certainly would not have wanted a competitive system. They certainly would never have allowed like VoIP, right, like like or any of these things. Um, and so, it, you know, it was, it was it, again, it's, it's this case of like, OK, they had the monopoly. They lost the monopoly because they lost the monopoly. It unleashed a wave of innovation that resulted literally in the Internet. Um, and so it's like a great case study of, 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 of the uh, of the trade-offs here. And, I, and, and like I said, there, there's no I don't think we're heading into a world where there's a single monopoly here. Like there are multiple large companies that have the wherewithal to be able to do this. And, you know, it doesn't need to be necessarily a single network effect. Um, but, the, you know, there, there is a world. 
training for discipline coupled with these companies that want to insulate themselves from competition would result in an oligopoly. So on the other side, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up this answer very shortly, but on, on, on the other side, there is both, I would argue, the technological possibility, and then there's also, I think, the policy, uh, you know, quite frankly, just like obviously like better scenario, which is you just know you actually have like a lot more free market competition. You have a lot more bottoms up innovation. You, you don't just have a few big companies doing AI. You have, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of companies doing and open source projects doing different things. Um, and then you have an explosion. Um, of, of, by the way, of, 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 of AIs at every level of scale, you've got little micro baby ones running on, you know, household appliances. Um, you've got, you know, the big cosmic god models, you know, running, running with the big companies are running. And then you've got lots, you know, every business is going to have its own, every, you know, big company is going to have its own AIs. Um, and, and every university will have its own AIs. Every, you know, researcher and scientist will be building their own AIs. And, and you'll have, you know, you'll basically have AIs at many different kinds of scale. And you could make different arguments as to where the technology wants to go. But the one thing I know is, right, if you basically centralize and bless an oligopoly that basically, um, you know, are the only companies that practically speaking can do AI, then you guarantee you're not going to have that explosion of innovation. And, and, and so there's like a path dependence to where this goes, right, because people are not going to work on it if it's not legal. Um, and so there, there's like a, the, 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 the shape of the technology will help determine the regulation. But very importantly, the shape of the regulation will determine the future of the technology. Uh, and I think there's a big danger here that this goes in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah, that's a big worry. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very gratified here to see a lot of you know founders in AI, a lot of researchers in AI uh, here in this space. And I, I, I want to take this conversation. This is the last question for me, and I might open it up to you know ten minutes of Q and A. Um, but I was going to ask: We are facing a time where we are obviously in the upswing of an AI hype cycle. Probably, I would say it was kicked off by Midjourney uh, and and David's in the audience, ChatGPT, um, and you know stable diffusion to some extent. Like, started to kick off this cycle. Now, every time there's a new hype cycle in technology, you get these kind of tourists and entryists who raise a bunch of money for a century vaporware. Um, and the previous AI winters have all occurred because, and we, we alluded to that, we talked about this at the start of the space, have all occurred because there has been this enormous overpromise of the capabilities that AI, AI could deliver versus what it actually delivered in the long run. One of my concerns as a founder in this space is running into another AI winter. Obviously, you as a pretty successful venture capitalist have been through these cycles before. What would you have to say to sort of founders of the space who are worried about this tourism and entryism? Yeah, so I have a different historical interpretation, and maybe it's just because I've had different experiences. But my my experience when you have like an AI winter or another winter in any other technology is my experience is it's not because of the entryists or the you know, speculative bubble or anything like this. My experience is it's because it doesn't work. Um, right. And, and, and I want to be very clear what I mean by like, it doesn't work like work because working for like, you know, commercial technology is, is, a, is actually a, a very complicated thing. Like, in other words, the technology has to work. It has to like actually functionally deliver res compelling results. Right. But then not just that. It also has to be packaged up in a way that it can be sold and bought. Right. It, ha it has to actually be deployed into real world environments. It has to actually be affordable. Right. Which turns out to be really critical. Um, right. And then it, it look at it has to like, you know, look, it has to basically fit into society like it, it has to people have to be psychologically ready for it. Um, you know, uh, companies have to be willing to, you know, sociologically adopt it. You know, broader society has to be willing to embrace it. Um, and so there's like this magic formula we could talk about, which is basically that technology that like basically doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. 
across sort of repeated waves of enthusiasm and, and crashes, right, in winters. And then at some point, it's like, oh, now it works, right? Um, and I'll just give you just a couple really simple examples of that. Uh, the smartphone, you know, the, the, the first like actual handheld quote, sort of quote unquote smartphone was I think I traced it back to Radio Shack in 1982. Um, and then, you know, later General Magic in 1993. And then, you know, it wasn't really until the iPhone and actually really wasn't really until the iPhone plus the App Store in like 2010, you know, that it really worked. You know, look, the Internet was invented in, in the 1960s, deployed in the 1970s, but didn't quote unquote work as a consumer offering until like 1994. Right. Um, and so you often have these things where it, you know, it just it, it, it takes time to kind of get all of these magic kind of pieces of alchemy, um, you know, kind of to come together. And, and so to me, like that's that's the thing that causes the wave, you know, each each successive wave to either, you know, fail or succeed is like, does it work, you know, for the, for kind of that that, that that definition of work. And, and, and so and then it's like if, if, if it doesn't work, like there's no amount of hype, you know, there's no amount of either seriousness or hype that can sustain an investment wave. Um, and then if it does work, like, honestly, it kind of doesn't matter how much hype and enthusiasm there is because it works. Right. And the hype and enthusiasm will lead to all the things that you see with speculative, you know, over people getting overly enthusiastic and too much, you know, a lot of bullshit and like parties start to get crazy. And like, there's you know, a lot of fake companies and like, yeah, there's, you know, I, you know, a lot of broken IPOs because there's a lot of fake companies go public. And like, there's, there's all these kind of undesirable kind of things around the edges, but at the core of it, like if you have something that works, like you're, you're not going to go through that same kind of thing. You're not going to go through that same kind of like fundamental crash where everybody's going to, you know, basically like write the whole thing off again. Uh, like even, even the internet, it's actually funny. We kind of went through this with the, with the internet because, um, you know, we had like this massive, obviously wave of say enthusiasm and, and uh, exuberance, you know, between basically 94 to, you know, 99 into 2000. And then we had the, you know, the dot-com crash hard in 2000. And there were people in 2000 and 2001 and 2002 that said just the internet is over. Um, but there weren't very many of them because basically it was working, right? And, and it actually like kept growing all the way through the dot-com bust and came out the other end and obviously did very well in the 20, in the 20 years that followed. And so, so anyway, so, so my sense is that this technology, AI now works like in this way that is actually very useful for a lot of people for a lot of things. Um, and, and look, every time you go through this, there's going to be some level of speculative like overinvestment. And over enthusiasm, I think that's just kind of human nature. We could talk about that, but I, I think that's going to happen. I just don't think it matters as much as the fundamental fundamental question of like, does this thing work? And by the way, if the thing doesn't work, then the fundamental question very much is like, how, how, you know, how do you make it work? Which is what a lot of very smart entrepreneurs, you know, obviously are, are working on every day right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, look, that's I think that's really good perspective. Um, We've got, we've got about 15 minutes left. Uh, I want to have a little time for audience Q&A, but before we do that, given our conversation, any closing thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I just, yeah. So I guess I would just say, look, this, this is, yeah. I, I mean, I said, I guess I said everything in the piece. I'm just thinking, I actually read a piece about this. And I'm like, oh, I just did. Um, so um, look, this is, this is a very, very, you're just like the universe is handing us collectively, like an incredible opportunity. Um, you know, this, this, you know, this, this, this is what it must've felt like. You know, when like Thomas Edison, like figured out electricity, right? Or David Sarnoff figured out, you know, radio or, or one of these moments, or Marconi figured out radio. It's one of these moments where you're just like, okay, you've been, you've been kind of, you, you, you've been, you've been gifted in life with like, there's going to be one of these things that's, that's like a turning point. You know, it's this, it's this incredible general purpose technology that, you know, potentially could be applied to everything. There's, there are enormous numbers of problems to be solved. 
Um, you know, there are enormous numbers of, of fun, you know, there's fundamental, there's fundamental scientific questions, there's engineering questions, there's application questions, there's, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, social questions. Um, and, you know, look, it's already off to the races, like it's already happening, you know, there, there's, like a big counter argument to my entire thing is like, look, it doesn't even like the doomers don't even matter because like the cat's already out of the bag. You've got, you know, whatever, 100 million people using, you know, chat GPT and whatever number of million people using, you know, the, the journey and it's, it's, it's peers. And, 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 you know, people love it and they use it every day and it's great. Um, and then, you know, the open source stuff, like it's like every day I see some new open source thing where I'm just like, wow. I won't say, I can't remember the name of the thing today, but there was a thing today where there was like compression was like quantizing compression um to get what is it 33 billion parameter models running on a single cpu um is it was like another big breakthrough today um you know and then what was it laura was like what how long ago was laura like a month two months ago or something it um, feels every so, every week like, feels like a year one of these moments where like it's you know consumer enthusiasm i think it's going to be very high here um you know businesses i look every ceo i talk to is trying to figure out what to do um you know with with, with ai and their business um, and then the, the open source stuff is going to be phenomenal. There's going to be a huge entrepreneurship boom here. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just going to be an incredibly exciting time. And there's going to be opportunities to really, I think, do amazing things with this technology. And ultimately, that's what we should keep our eye on and not, you know, all these sort of irrational panics. Yeah, I mean, strongly, strongly agree. And again, as a founder and even an open, open source founder in this space, nope, we lost think, your, uh, audio as an entrepreneur. Oh, sorry. Uh, how are we now? Is that better? Are we back? Hey, Anton, we uh, we can't hear you. Fuck. There we go. Uh, mute, unmute. How about now? Yeah, still can't hear you. Shit. Oh man. Hang on, I'm gonna. Folks, bear with us for a moment. Shit breaks. Anton, actually, we can hear you, Mark. It's a problem on your side, I think. What? Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I can hear you. Sorry, folks. We uh, we we got to blame Elon for this one. I think for you, but not Anton. Interesting. So I can translate for Anton. Thanks, Amjad. We'll we'll do this relay style, like it's uh, it's the goddamn Pony Express. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up some people, and you know, I've got Amjad. I've got you up here. Uh, you know, have you got something to add? What do you want to say? Um, maybe a question for, for Mark, um, Mark, if, if you're like a, if you're like a young hacker, like you were, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, when you, uh, when you invented the first, uh, browser, uh, what would you do to kind of sort of advance the thing that, um, that you talked about in the, in the piece today about how, to, how to just make the world a better place with, with AI and, and sort of make sure it doesn't get sort of captured. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, look, there's tons and tons and tons of interesting things to be done. Um, and a lot of those obviously involve, you know, building companies. Um, I do think we're at a moment in time, though, when what happens in the open source world is going to be absolutely critical. 
Um, and, and that's already the case. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to be a lot more so in the future. Like if open source has worked in the past, then this is going to be a, you know, a universally available technology that's going to basically be, you know, something that is owned by all of humanity for, you know, for centuries to come. And it's going to be a tremendous, you know, I think, boon to the entire world. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the all, you know, and you see a lot of this work already happening, but, you know, the, the work that's kind of happening simultaneously in open source land to both, you know, try to figure out how to, you know, basically get, um, you know, models to run on, on, on sort of, uh, you know, practical levels of hardware. Uh, without requiring a big company behind it. Um, but then also, you know, to be able to have the models be really good, right? Like, I'll give you an example. So one of the, one of the questions, one, like one of the questions that I think about a lot of that I'd tr be trying to work on is like, you know, in what scenarios specifically are people going to be, are going to be willing to use in production, in deployment on a daily basis, models that are not the biggest models, right? Um, you know, that are not the, you know, kind of God models that, you know, cost whatever billion dollars. Like, you know, exactly under what circumstances are people going to use the smaller models? Because if the answer is just, oh, you know, they're cheaper, but like, you know, the answers aren't as good. Like, it, you know, that, then that suggests that maybe, the, you know, there actually is here going to be a large amount of centralization because, you know, maybe people then are just going to be like, well, I, I, you know, I want my intelligence to actually be like smart. Um, and so I'll pay more and I'll, I'll just, you know, kind of, you know, feed off the, the, the grid of one of, of one of the big companies. And, and by the way, there are a lot of people who will do that. And that'll be, I think, a great business for them. But. You know, if there are lots and lots of use cases, like if the if the open source technology makes it straightforward to be able to have, you know, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of use cases where companies that are doing very or people who are doing very different kinds of things um, can have models that are, you know, tailored and customized and trained in different ways, um, you know, uh, you know, that, that, that are like, you know, as good or better than if they just like plugged into, uh, you know, a, a supercomputer grid. Um, then that, that that will help shape the future of the world in a way where this technology is much more universal, um, and so that you know that that's probably the single biggest thing that could happen. And, and I'm John. I know, you know I'm obviously going through this. I know that what what you're doing at, at Replit is a great example of this right now. Right, and, and and a lot of times you start with a sort of a mega model, and then you, when you're using this mega models, you're like obviously not using the entirety of the capability of that model subset of a set of a subset of a distribution uh, on, on this model for like a given prompt or a function and you sort of over time starts and that's what we do at Revlet over you know we'll prototype with the mega models and then over time we'll train more specialized models that could take over like one function or one subset or one layer um, and it's, it's sort of it's a it's an exercise in, in engineering but you know you can get very far with with a really big model, but I think over time, companies are gonna want to cut costs and improve their margins. And so they, they would invest in open source. And, you know, what's really cool now is that, you know, it, it, there's a new type of, like open source was getting kind of boring to be honest, but now we have a new type right. of open source technology. And like, it, it is similar to the old one where, you know, there, there are libraries and there are frameworks and there are, uh, you know, device uh, firmware, there are operating systems, you gotta fork them and remix them. And and now with with LLMs, we have all sorts of new different primitives. Like, you know, you can open source uh, instruct data sets, you can open source a different kind of data sets, other people could uh, remix them or fork them. You can open source a fine tuning framework, you can open source model weights and people can fine tune those. And you see this new sort of software evolutionary system 
that's growing in front of our eyes and it's incredibly exciting i think really like coming up in software now gives you like really new tools and new toys to play with and there's there's going to be a ton of companies to build around these things like you know for example the the use case that i mentioned which is taking uh something you did really easily with a mega model and being able to uh translate that or distill that into a small model that should be really one click like i should be able to send a prompt right. to service and just say like hey like distill a model like a you know three billion parameter model for for this prompt and it has to do really well on these tests that i you know accumulated in in running this in production and i think that will be possible over the next year or so yeah, like the, the shape of the Let's world I'd like to see for this, um, you know, is, is, is basically what happened to the computer. Like, so, so, so you've got these examples like AT&T with the phone system or with like maybe with search where you ended up with, you know, one or two or three kind of big search companies, um, you know, where you had this intense centralization. But like the computer itself actually like went the other way. It actually went very decentralized. And, and the history there is actually very entertaining because when IBM first released the first literally computer, the first electronic computer, the first mainframes, you know, there's this famous quote, which is actually something that he that, that, that was actually said at the time that Thomas Watson ran IBM. He said that basically the entire world market for computers is basically five five computers, and it was literally it was two for the U.S. government, and then it was three for the big insurance companies, and that was it. And in fact, IBM in those days they were almost completely dominant in the computer industry. They actually didn't sell computers; they only leased them, um, because the you know the theory basically was like there there's just going to be this, these like giant centralized monoliths um, that that they actually so wanted to be able to own and control. You know, look, fast forward, whatever, 70 years and, you know, the world we live in today, you know, we're all surrounded by computers every day, including, you know, chips that are like absolutely tiny and, you know, cost almost nothing that are embedded in everything around us. And, you know, there are operating systems at different levels of scale and complexity all around us and programming environments and application frameworks and user interfaces, you know, of just like dizzying variety. You know, the, the typical car has like, what is it, 200 chips now? Um, right. I mean, just, you know, just the car and you're, you're, you know, in your house is, you know, probably another, you know, probably for most people, another 200, 300, 400 chips. Um, and so, you know, the world I want to live in is the one where, you know, that's exactly what happens with AI. Um, and there are micro AIs taking care of, you know, door access and, and other things. And then, you know, all scaled all the way up to the, you know, scaled all the way up to the God models that are, you know, curing cancer and developing warp drive um, and kind of every, every intermediate stage like that, that, that you know, that, that would be my ideal outcome. Yeah, I think that's that's what's going to be necessary. Uh, ben from Wombo, you want to come up here? Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Uh, hey, Mark. Hey. This is Ben uh, from Wombo. And my question is on the compute side. Um, so our apps have been used by over 100 million people. And compute has always been our primary bottleneck. And earlier in the conversation, you know, we spoke about the necessity of huge amounts of compute, both to train and run inference on new models. So I have two kind of connected questions here. Um, first, what opportunity, if any, do you see in sort of crowdsourced compute networks as consumer hardware becomes more powerful and you have like, you know, flagship MacBooks and smartphones that are pretty capable of running these AI workloads? Yep. And second, when will A16Z have its own cloud that its portfolio companies can use? Yeah, so no, no comment on number two, um, but uh, yeah, look on number one. So a couple things. So one is like, look, we're, we're just in a weird moment of time here. There's a very unusual thing happening, which is there's a chip shortage. 
Um, and it's just really unusual to have a chip shortage. Like that's not typically, typically the chip companies have more chips to sell than they can sell. Uh, they have a surplus and, and there's just, there's a shortage and, you know, and look, the shortage is for the best of all possible reasons, which is, it just turns out like AI works. Um, and, uh, you know, it turns out that there's this magic kind of chip, you know, the GPU, um, you know, that's best for it. And there's just a, you know, there's just a bottleneck right now. It's just a logistical bottleneck. I literally making up GPUs. Um, you know, the GPU vendors, I think, would love to be able to make more. They're, they're working as hard as they can. Um, and then, look, chips, historically, the market for chips, you know, is, is, is like a lot of other markets where, you know, there's the, the adage kind of is, you know, the, 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 the cure for high prices is high prices. Um, you know, the cure for low demand is low demand, right, which is to say when there's a supply demand imbalance like there is now, then there's a big profit motive, right, opportunity for, you know, the existing companies or, or other companies. Uh, right to kind of you know come in and step in and you know cre you know create create a lot more supply um, and so you know everybody everybody in the chip industry everybody in the world saw you know has seen Nvidia success they saw Nvidia top a trillion dollar market cap um, you know they're seeing AI work and they're you know everybody in that world is just like okay now we know what to do uh, we need to go build GPUs or TPUs or other forms of of, of AI chips so. So, you know, I'm, I am pretty confident that like, you know, at some point within the next call it, I don't know, I, I'm going to be an optimist and say maybe two years, um, you know, this, this is going to resolve. Um, you know, if history is a guide, at some point there's going to be a GPU surplus, but we're, 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 we're probably quite a ways away from that. Um, so that'll resolve. So a lot of the drama around compute right now is going to, I think, you know, over time fade. And then, by the way, what's going to happen is obviously everything's going to get cheaper. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of competition. There's going to be a lot of uh, innovation. Um, you know, there's already a lot of work, work happening to kind of make all this stuff cheaper, uh, you know, including at the, at the hardware level. But then also at the software level, right, there's a huge amount of work going into also, you know, shrinking the, the compute footprint required at the software uh, level as well. So. So I think that's all going to happen. And then you, you alluded to, I think the other thing is going to happen, which is there are going to be basically grid, you know, networks, decentralized networks. Um, and, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're going to be, you know, I think that, you know, they're, we're, you know, we're, we're very enthusiastic about, for example, the idea of applying, you know, kind of crypto blockchain, you know, kind of web three economics to this is, is sort of one idea, you know, I'm sure there are, people will have other ideas. Um, you know, there are precedents for this with projects like folding at home um, and SETI at home. Um, you know, for kind of large scale distributed grids, you could also point to like Bitcoin and BitTorrent uh, as two other examples. Um, and so, yeah, look, a lot of people have, you know, very powerful supercomputer equivalent, you know, MacBooks or whatever uh, sitting around. And, you know, I think that to the extent that there is a literally a shortage of compute cycles um, or just a desire to have a level of freedom, um, you know, away from being kind of tethered to big systems. Um, I think there's a really big opportunity to kind of do decentralized compute. Um, and that's another, by the way, another area of open source that I'd be very enthusiastic about is, is um, you know, or startups, um, it is enabling technology for, for doing decentralized training. Um, uh, and I think that, yeah, I think that I, I think that will play an important role here as well. Yeah. All right. Um, Beth, what if uh, what question have you got for Mark? Yeah, thanks for the wonderful write-up, Mark. Uh, it's been really awesome to see this uh, movement grow from uh, a grassroots movement on the internet to front and center now of the <laughs> culture war, I guess. But um, yeah, so, you know, as we can see, the oligopoly and the incumbents are like moving pretty rapidly politically. Uh, you know, we kind of lead a, as you know, a grassroots movement online of like fighting the mimetic war against the doomers and decels, as we call them. Uh, and, and and those kind of like doomers and D cells are being co-opted right now into, uh, you know, uh, for, for regulatory capture. Basically, the incumbents are using the fear uh, to, you know, fire up the governments and uh, get them to crown them uh, as the 
you know, emperors of, of the AI world forever. What what do we do to, to stop this? Like, you know, we kind of feel powerless as like founders or, uh, you know, just uh, young people on the internet that want to live in a free market of models, free market of ideas, a free market of software uh, and AI. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm starting to think that Beth isn't there. No, I can hear it. So I can hear Beth. I can hear him fine. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, I can hear you too. Uh, by the way, just to spice this up, I just heard that uh, Gary Marcus uh, today got a huge grant. So, so yeah, yeah, all these all these diesel grifters that are they're getting they're getting some real uh, recognition power. Yep, exactly. Um, so yeah, let me. So I don't. Know, I think we're having a spaces, but I think there's a bug in spaces, and so maybe I don't know if everybody heard the question. Maybe maybe I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll rephrase the question really quickly in case people uh, weren't able to hear it. Um, so yeah, so so basically, like there's this big push, uh, like there's this big push in DC that's very public now, uh, where there's a set of you know especially big companies that are kind of pushing really. They're sort of using an, you know sort of various AI doom narratives to basically go for what's known as regulatory capture. Uh, to basically get control of the regulatory process and, and you know, basically erect barriers to competition uh, sort of under the cover of, of various kinds of, you know, protective regulations. Um, I, I talk about this in my piece. Um, yeah. And so what, you know, what, what, what do we do about that? I mean, look, so the bad, <laughs> the bad news is that's happening. Um, you know, the bad, the bad news is there's, there's a, uh, there's an old, with the old, uh, there's this old thing that has to do with involvement in, in government affairs, which is, um, you know, sort of when people get kind of special treatment from the government, which is, um, you know, the people who want special treatment are, are a very concentrated minority um, and they have a very easy time organizing. Um, and then the people who would actually suffer from that, which is like everybody else, is sort of a decentralized majority. And the problem with the decentralized majority is they have a very hard time organizing. Um, and so basically there's this there can be these moments where these like very small groups of people basically snake in and uh, are able to you know kind of basically use the government uh, to their own ends before the broader population has figured it out. Um, you know, look, vis I think visibility is part of it. It's one, one of the reasons I, you know, I wrote my piece, um, you know, look, another part of it is going to be, there is going to need to be direct engagement in DC, um, and people who are on the side of, you know, the, the, the sort of, sort of, of more decentralization, more freedom, um, you know, less like, uh, you know, less, less, less of a cartel approach are going to need to get more involved in politics. And, you know, that, by the way, that, that includes me and, uh, and, uh, and, and my firm. Um, and then look, there, I think you heard it. You heard it here. Mark Andreessen kind of is regular, running for you know, president. Kind of regular people can do who aren't directly involved in, in, in DC. Um, and so one is just like, look, if there is a decentralized movement, if there's a decentralized grassroots bottom-up movement that catches fire, um, that a lot of people are in, right? Um, and they like are visible and public and make noise uh, and make themselves known. And the politicians figure out that there's a constituency and a voter base. Um, and, you know, there are people that are basically surfacing these things and care about it. Um, you know, that, that does start to, that, that does start to tilt the politics. Um, and then the final thing, honestly, is like, it goes back to open source. One of the reasons I'm enthusiastic about, about all the open source work right now is honestly, a big part of this is I think it needs to be a fait accompli. Um, and, you know, I don't say that lightly. Um, but like, I think there's no question this technology is good. And I think that this technology should be very universally available for all the reasons I described in my piece and like just simply having that be a reality, um, and have it be something that basically cannot be, you know, essentially, you know, basically easily shunted aside in favor of a government blessed cartel. Um, I, I think is a big part of it. And so I think everybody contributing to that on the, on the technical side is also actually really helping right now. Great. Uh, one last question. We'll bring up Pessimist Archive. Uh, we'd love to hear what they have to say. Hey, can everyone hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I sure can. 
Yeah. Hi, Mark. Thanks for referencing our piece. Uh, that's awesome. Um, so obviously, you know, in 1863, Samuel Butler wrote his screed against the machines um, and called for basically an end to technological progress. And a thought experiment I've been running is what if people had listened to him then um, yeah. and think of all of the progress and suffering that would have continued and made a future that was more dystopian when he was saying that it would... Uh, 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 sorry, create a future that was less dystopian. And yep. uh, my my question is, what progress do you think is most at risk and what invisible victims are you most worried about if AI is slowed down um, or over-regulated? Um, yeah, so the, the nature, you sort of identify the nature of the problem, right? So the na nature of the problem is kind of like we know what we have today, right? And this, this is true, for example, for employment, for jobs. This is true for like you know, the balance of power in the world. You know, this is true for how things work today. Like we know what we have today. We know the level of material wealth we have. We know that we have the sort of systems that we have, the status hierarchies, the power structures that we have. Like we have this today. By the way, you know, we kind of take all that for granted, right? Because we just inherited it right, from people who came before us, like, you know, to the point of what you guys do at the Pessimist Archive, like every previous generation had these kinds of fights about all the progress that was happening back then. The only reason we have everything we have today from to the internet to, you know, so, you know, to, to uh, you know, to roads and cars and everything else, uh, airplanes and everything else is because, you know, people like us 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, fought hard to make those things happen against objections that are very similar to what we're hearing today. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we take for granted everything we've inherited. Like, I just think it's just obvious, like we have a moral responsibility, you know, not just to ourselves, but to future generations. Like, you know, we have to care. We have to carry that forward um, and we have to make sure progress doesn't stop with us. And we have to make sure that it continues. And, and, and we should be aiming for a world and, you know, 30 years from now where, you know, we and our children and then ultimately our grandchildren and great grandchildren are just living in a much better world. Right. A much safer world, a much more peaceful world, a much more interesting world, uh, a much more materially prosperous world, you know, a world of much less disease and suffering. Um, you know, like whatever, however you want to define a better world that we're going to live in that world. And the way to live in that world is to invent the technologies and, 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 and proliferate the technologies that will make that make that possible. So so I think we have to do that. The, the asymmetry in it is, you know, you can't see all those things because they don't exist yet. Right. And so it, it's it's all what, what economists call it's all opportunity cost. Right. Uh, the, the, the cost of the slowdown. Right. At the cost of implementing the precautionary principle is all the things that don't happen that you don't see. Right. And then basically people can say, well, you know, you know, we're not missing anything because we, you know, we didn't know that we uh, we had it. Um, and so, you know, you do have to use some imagination to be able to say that a, a better world is possible. Um, the thing that's just so compelling to me about AI, you know, that I talk about in the piece is the fact that intelligence can intelligence like intelligence can make everything better. Um, and so this is one of those things where you can point to any area of the world that you think needs to be improved, right? And so just as a very simple example, healthcare, right, and curing diseases, right? Um, uh, like, you know, like AI is going to make that better. Like there's just no way that's already underway. Um, or, you know, you know, any, literally any other, I'll just give you an example. There's a, there's a writer's, there's a writer's strike, even an example in the domain, there's a writer's strike happening in Hollywood right now and the writers are all up in arms. It started out as a strike about streaming rights and then it turned into an AI strike kind of halfway through. But like, look, like AI is going to give, <laughs> the screenwriter should not be, in my view, should not be striking about AI. They should be like rushing headlong to try to embrace it as quickly as possible. Because when you take like modern image generation and sound generation AI technologies and you give them to a screenwriter, it's going to be possible for screenwriters to make their own movies, 
right? Like the screenwriter is going to write the movie, and then the, the the machine is actually going to render everything, right? Yeah, they um, don't need Hollywood anymore, right? So, yeah, or or the shape of Hollywood changes, and the same writers that are you know scared of AI right now all of a sudden realize actually they're in a much more powerful position because they they're not as dependent anymore on the directors and the actors, and they can actually take more control over the creative process. So, so anyway, you can you can kind of pick. This, this is what's so enticing about this technology. It's like a general purpose technology. It's intelligence, and so you just pick an area where you think the world ought to work better, and you say, well, what what if what if we were smarter? Um, and, and if there's a way for you to kind of say, okay, if we were smarter, we would be able to do this better, you know, then, then, then there's going to be a, there's going to be massive benefit from that. And I, I, I think in the fullness of time that implies that applies to, you know, literally hundreds of areas of, you know, kind of human challenge and toil and, you know, unhappiness and, um, you know, um, you know, risk and danger, you know, today that we take for granted that hopefully 30 years from now and 50 and a hundred years from now, you know, our children and grandchildren will be like, wow, I, you know, <laughs> I can't believe, I can't believe grandpa lived in the old world. Right. Like, I can't believe grandpa lived in a world where people drove cars, you know, 70 miles an hour. And, and the way that they kept the cars from running each other, into each other was they painted a, a line down the center of the road. Right. And like and, and then, you know, the people got like, you know, drunk or distracted. And then they were like ran into each other and killed each other. Like, like how primitive were those people in 2023 that that's the world that they were living in? Um, and so that, that, I think that's, 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 you know, that's the kind of vision that you want to have, which is that there will be a much better world for our children and grandchildren that will just, we'll, 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 that they'll be much happier in. I think that's right. All right. I think we're going to wrap here. Somebody has to relay this to Mark because obviously he can't hear me. Um, but this has been really great. I think that what comes out of this is more definite optimism around this technology and, you know, seeing it as a path toward the future rather than something to become yet another political football. Thanks, everybody, for coming out, and there'll be lots more to come. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, we're just wrapping up. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Oh, all done? All finished? Yeah. Okay, all set. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Okay.